you take a small amount of a substance, it diffuses into your brain, it stays there for a few hours and diffuses it back out. And for many people, they never see the world in the same way again. How is it possible for a small molecule to do that? It's just beyond uh, belief that, that that could happen. And, and it's what Roland said, 70% said this is among the five most profound experiences that they, they'd ever had. And these were normal, healthy people that, that were in that study. Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we bypass the ordinary and familiar to explore the unsettled edges of medicine, where we tackle real problems in depth, where we mine the knowledge and experience spectrum of your peers through long-form conversations, not sound bites. Take us with you anytime, anywhere, and get ready to make your downtime count. Get ready for Peer Spectrum with Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. All right, welcome back. We have really been looking forward to this episode. As many of you know, clinical research with psychedelic compounds like psilocybin, LSD, and MDMA have gotten a lot of press recently. Major institutions such as Johns Hopkins, UCLA, and Yale are leading the charge with dramatic results in the treatment of drug addiction, PTSD, end-of-life care, depression, and other mental illnesses that are simply breathtaking. When we think back to the psychedelic 60s, it's hard to imagine that there was actually a legitimate clinical research taking place with psychedelics then too. Although much of it, think Timothy Leary, wouldn't pass even the most lenient institutional review boards today. Nearly all of the U.S. research came to a screeching halt with the passage of the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. Only now are we beginning to reawaken to the incredible healing and transformative effects these compounds can actually offer. Today, it's our distinct privilege to speak with the researcher who carried the torch through a time when psychedelic research was nearly non-existent. When it comes to the mechanisms of action, biochemistry, and pharmacology of psychedelics, David Nichols is arguably the world's foremost expert. He's a neuropharmacologist who spent the better part of four decades researching and producing these compounds. And yes, all legally, as Nichols held one of the very few DEA licenses granted during this time. Now, if you're skeptical about all this, hang in there. We're going to see how psychedelic tools can open new pathways to understanding neuroscience, mental illness, and even perhaps change who we are and how we see the world. A majority of those who experience a psychedelic trip consider it among the most meaningful experiences of their entire lives. How is this possible? Well, we're going to try to find out. With that said, let's get started. Dave, welcome to the show. We are really excited to have you and really excited to talk about this today. I'm glad to be here. Well, Dave, I've been reading a lot about this. I mean, there's, especially this year, it seems there's been a lot more focus on the clinical use of psychedelics and also research because this hasn't fully been approved and, you know, ready for, for widespread use yet. But Michael Pollan had a best-selling book earlier this year about this. And I think I've spent so much time, Keith and I have spent so much time talking about this. Probably it's good for everybody to get up to speed with this, especially our listeners who may not be as familiar. So maybe to start us off here, give us an idea of some of the recent history, especially in the United States, of psychedelics. Maybe we'll go all the way back and start with Dr. Hoffman, and give us an idea of where it started and then take us to the present day. Yeah, well, Albert Hoffman first synthesized uh, LSD-25. It was the 25th in a series of ergot derivatives he was making. He says he was making it as uh, a possible improvement on a drug called coramine, which was a respiratory stimulant, and uh, sent it down to the pharmacology department, and they they looked at it and said, you know, it wasn't very interesting. And... Uh, in 1943, he was eating lunch, and he even remembers the sandwich he was eating. I don't remember it was yogurt and cucumbers, something like that. And he says, and I just had this feeling that they had missed something with that 25th compound. And so I thought I'd resynthesize some and send it down and have it tested again. This is five years later. 
And in drug companies, that doesn't happen. You know, if you make a compound as a chemist and you send it to the pharmacology department and they say, you know, it's no good. I mean, that's basically it. To send it back and say, well, I think you missed something would be to question the integrity of the pharmacologist. And of course, being Swiss, that wouldn't go real well. But who do you think you are, Albert? You know, like questioning our pharmacology. But somehow, uh, he got some in his body. No one knows how. And I've talked to him about it. He doesn't know how. Um, uh, anyway, he got some in his body and on, on a Friday in April 1943 and uh, had these strange experience and kaleidoscopic images and really bizarre. And he went home and he couldn't figure out. He said, it must be something he was working with. But he says, you know, he was working with dichloromethane, which won't do anything to you. So he'd been making a sample of LSD, purifying a sample, and he thought, well, maybe that was it. So he went back in on uh, Monday and made, made up a solution of LSD in water and took the equivalent of 250 micrograms. And that's a pretty hefty dose of LSD. And uh, he pedaled home on his bicycle pretty quickly after that. He sent for the doctor. By the time the doctor got there, he was, you know, there was no crisis. But uh, anyway, so uh, he told his uh, boss at uh, Sandoz, what happened and they found it was pretty incredulous because there wasn't any drug known that was that potent at that, at that era. So then uh, his boss and some other colleagues took a dose, but a much smaller dose. And uh, they confirmed the observation that this was an extremely powerful compound. So Sandoz distributed as a, for psychologists and psychiatrists to take as a model of mental illness. So you could take this and after you experience the effects, you get an idea of what was in the minds of your, you know, sick patients. And uh, they sent it to all kinds of people. You didn't have to have a license, and it wasn't this controlled substance. It wasn't any such thing as a scheduled substance then. So lots of people— and this kind of self-experimentation wasn't unusual then, right? No, no. Actually, until we had the drug war, you know, chemists would try their own things, you know, sometimes foolhardy, but other times just— Curious, you know, saccharin was uh, discovered by someone who laid their cigarette on the bench and got some on the tip of the cigarette and put it in their mouth and said, oh, that's sweet. So that doesn't happen much anymore. <laughs> no, not at all. No. But anyway, um, this really caught on and psychiatry thought this is the, you know, this was shortly after the discovery of the atomic bomb. And psychiatrists thought, well, this is the you know, biological equivalent. This is a, a major breakthrough for psychiatry. And there were... Uh, Ten, there were a thousand scientific publications describing treatment of 40,000 patients approximately in that 1950s to early 1960s period of time. So it was really researched widely by some of the top people. Now the, the technology they had was fairly rudimentary, but still by the by that by the era, the state of the art of that time, you know, they were respectable, respectable scientists. They really thought this is going to reshape psychiatry. It's going to be a really big deal. Well, then it escaped from the laboratory, and uh, of course, during the Vietnam War, hippies started taking it and smoking marijuana and protesting the war, and that really uh, got government officials concerned. Um, we read now that one of Nixon's aides said that the whole drug war was really started as a way to disenfranchise the hippies who were anti-war and mostly democratic. <laughs> and I, I've seen that a couple of times. I think it was John Ehrlichman that said that in an interview. I had never heard that before, but that pres presumably is one possible reason for the start of the war against drugs, because they didn't have any good way to disenfranchise liberal democratic uh, hippie protesters. But if they caught them with marijuana and they had a felony, then they'd lose their right to vote. But anyway, um, hmm. 
so I think LSD was probably scheduled in California maybe in 1966 or thereabouts, but then we had the Controlled Substance Act of 1970, which scheduled it nationally. Uh, LSD, peyote, psilocybin, psilocybin mushrooms are all put in the Schedule One, which is the most restrictive class of drugs. And then things began to wind down pretty quickly. I think we had a clinical study that was going at uh, Johns Hopkins or, or maybe in Baltimore, Maryland at the Spring Grove Hospital. I think it went on actually until about 1976, but they weren't giving any new approvals. Sandoz quit letting people access their drug master file. So everything just kind of got shut down and nothing happened after about that point in time. Um, you could do uh, preclinical things, which is what I did for years and years and years, but clinical research essentially stopped. Let's pause for a minute, just think about what this experience is like for people. I got a quote from Ronald Griffith, who's you know one of your colleagues at Johns Hopkins who's actively doing uh, clinical research right now. And this came from Michael Pollan's book. He, he's quoted as saying, as a scientific phenomenon, if you can create a condition in which 70% of people will say they have had one of the most meaningful experiences of their lives, well, as a scientist, that's just incredible, unquote. So as somebody who has not had experience with this, that's, it's hard for me to get my head around that, that you can take a chemical and that can be up there with having the birth of your child, uh, surviving a car accident, something that's a really incredible, uh, impactful event in your life. We want to obviously talk about why you think this is possible because you're a neuropharmacologist, but what is it that people are experiencing on this that's so powerful? Just a subjective experience. Let me try to use an analogy. We know about prophets in old times that had visions and completely changed their life, etc. So you could see the, the psychedelic experience as being analogous to that. So someone believing they could talk to God or they, they were outside the universe, they, they witnessed the Big Bang, uh, witnessed the evolution of man. These are insights that are so profound we can't even imagine you know, what they are. The concept of infinity. I mean, I, I say, oh, infinity, what does infinity mean? But under a psychedelic, you can actually apprehend what is infinity. So concepts become tractable that in ordinary consciousness you just you can't approach. And people would ask me, why do why you study psychedelics? Why, why do you find them so interesting? And I'd say, well, think about this. And it, this relates to Roland's comment. You take a small amount of a substance. It diffuses into your brain. It stays there for a few hours and diffuses back out. And for many people, they never see the world in the same way again. How is it possible for a small molecule to do that? I mean, it just it's just beyond uh, belief that, that that could happen. And, and it's what Roland said. 70% said this is among the five most profound experiences that they, they'd ever had. And these were normal, healthy people that, that were in that study. Is there uh, access to the results of the studies before the scheduling of the drug? I mean, you talked about the thousand studies and the 40,000 patients. Do we know what those show? Do, you know where, do we know where they were heading? Um, yeah, they, were there papers that you can study and, and maybe translate into anything useful for today? Yes, um, those were generally all published in the, the scientific medical literature. Um, there have been, you know, for uh, the problem is they were used for all kinds of things. Uh, this, and the therapist often took the drug with the patients, and there was a debate about whether they should take it along with the patients or not. And um, it was used for treating all kinds of things sexual dysfunction, uh, alcoholism, all kinds of addictions, family therapy. Uh, you could just, you, anything you could think of probably they had used it for. 
One of the things that seemed the most interesting and actually turned out to have some validity was treatment of people who had alcoholism, or now it's called alcohol use disorder. Uh, there were probably a dozen studies where they treated alcoholics with LSD. Um, and the results were sort of not really clear. So people say, well, they treat them, but we don't really know what happened. But there was a meta-analysis done a few years ago where they took all the studies that could be combined, and they have to have the sort of the same kind of in inclusion criteria and the same, you know, uh, uh, output results, and put them together, and they do a meta-analysis. And the meta-analysis showed, in fact, that LSD treatment had improved sobriety in alcoholics. So that was one of the most interesting ones. The studies that were done, especially at Spring Grove State Hospital, State Hospital, with LSD and later dipropyltryptamine, looked at patients who were basically terminal cancer patients, mm -hmm. and uh, they saw 60 to 70 percent improvement in their outlook on life, uh, the, the ability to face death, decreased need for pain medication. So that was another one that was fairly well documented. Um, a lot of the others were just, you know, not well documented. They're anecdotal reports. You have one or two patients. So they weren't controlled. So we really didn't know a lot, but the people who used these were just really excited. They thought these are amazing new substances. Well, I think it's important to touch on the benefits of this because that's, you know, really the whole point here. Just give us an idea. Someone who has terminal cancer, they know they have a certain amount of time left. This is, I can't imagine anything that actually would make you feel better in that, that state. What, once they, and, then, and then also I think it's important to note they usually take this once, right? It's not like they're taking right. it every week. Um, after that experience, what do they say has changed in their mind? How do how has their outlook on the world changed? What happened from the time before to after this this treatment? Yeah, um, we actually have on our website, the hefter.org, we have some videos of people who were treated that way. But uh, one of the first ones that we published was in Charlie Grobe's study at UCLA. She was the third patient in that study. And she had a um, terminal uh, melanoma. She was a high-functioning executive that had traveled the world, was involved in educational testing service, et cetera. And she was facing death and was given, I think, a prognosis of you know, six months to live. And she was uh, enrolled in the study. And after the experiment, we did a video with her. Her husband made us take it down because he never really got over his grieving for his wife. But it was a really powerful video. And she was interviewed. She said it was... She said, you know, it was like I saw all the fear and the cancer as like a big, dark blob. And I thought, go away. I, I, I'm not dead yet. I still have life to live. And But it was a kind of profound, you know, you can say, say these words and they don't have the meaning they have, that you, you, they have under a psychedelic. And so she lived, I think, another almost two years before she finally died. And she got out and started exercising. She and her husband started traveling. She had a new you know, joie de vivre, new joy for life, zest for life, just completely changed. I don't have to be afraid. You know, my, I, would, I would die when my time comes, but why should I let the fear cripple me now? So this, this is what happens to a lot of people who are dying. They, uh, they become estranged from family. Um, they just you know, want to be left alone to die. Not everybody, but a lot of people. And they have this existential crisis, like this is it. The rubber's hitting the road here. And, you know, I'm I'm going to lose everything and everybody I know, and uh, this is a horrible situation. And somehow, when they have this treatment, um, their attitude changes. They're not afraid to die anymore. 
they realize how precious life is, how precious the family members are. A lot of people have been estranged from family members for a long time, want to get back in touch with those family members and repair the breach. And so it really is a life-changing event. We don't understand why and how. I mean, that's the big question, but it, it, it's really amazing. I see. So how is it that the uh, psychedelics started to come back into clinical interest? How, how have the clinical studies that are starting to come up where did that uh, impetus come from? It wasn't accidental. <laughs> <laughs> I started in this field in 1969, probably the longest working person in the field, as a neuroscientist, chemist neuroscientist. Um, and I should also mention Rick Maps, who, uh, Rick Maps, Rick Doblin, who started an organization called Maps. Rick and I have known each other. We met in 1984. And Rick started this organization called Maps to really develop MDMA into a medicine. And I was uh, working at Purdue University as a medicinal chemist, neuropharmacologist. And um, I would go to scientific meetings and I would say, you know, it's really a shame nobody's doing research on these because I, you know, I went to grad school in 1969. So all the people of my generation, my peers, many of them went through that. They took LSD, they took other psychedelics and they, oh, they thought, wow, these are amazing. Why can't anybody research them? And we'd bemoan the fact that nobody could. And I'd say, but you know, you could, it's just you're not going to have, the government's not going to fund it, because the government quit funding when, it, when the Controlled Substance Act came out. NAMH and, and Health and Human Services said, we're not funding this anymore. It's too controversial, it's too dangerous, whatever. whatever. So um, I'd say, you know, so you could do this, you just wouldn't get any government funding. And I had people poop with me, oh, the government will never let you do this. So, and I'd say, yeah, they will. And finally, I, I remember, and I've told this story before, I went home after one of those meetings and 1992 or thereabouts, and I was sitting in my chair thinking, you know, Dave, you're going to be 80 years old, sitting in a rocking chair, still complaining about the fact that nobody's doing any research on these. Why don't you start something? And I didn't have an MD, and that was really, I thought, you really need to have an MD. So I called some MDs and some other PhDs I knew who were sympathetic. I said, let's start an organization. We called it the Hefter Research Institute because it was named after Arthur Hefter, who's the person who isolated mescaline from peyote. Right. And he was really an amazing guy. We have a bio on our Hector website about him. But he had a PhD in chemistry, a PhD in pharmacology, and an MD degree. He's the guy who invented the hair test for arsenic. He said he told the Germans you had to take lead liners out of your beer because you're getting lead poisoning. I mean, he was a public health guy, amazing guy. So we named it after him. And we said, okay, now let's find some money to support people to do this. We thought we'd go to Silicon Valley folks, and they, you know, many of them had taken LSD, and they, oh yeah, we'll be happy to help you. No, <laughs> they all held on to their money. I mean, Steve Jobs and people like that. I mean, they weren't going to fund this. It was too controversial. We had one donation from a couple in San Diego years and years ago. They gave us ten thousand dollars, and uh, I saw her recently, and she mentioned that, yeah, you know, we donated to you, and I says, I remember your donation because you said. No one can ever know where this money came from. <laughs> so that was sort of, you know, we, we even had a fellow who was connected. He'd been a, an attorney for the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC, I think it was, and knew a lot of people who were sympathetic. He was able to raise some money, but never he never raised more than what we were paying him to do it. We had the Bob Wallace, who was the ninth employee of Microsoft, was our first major funding funder, and he gave us ten or hundred, hundred or hundred fifty thousand a year. He was just interested in brain science, and he had the money, so he supported. So we didn't have any clinical studies at, 
at first, but we gave some awards to scientists who had been in this field for outstanding accomplishments. We gave some graduate fellowships, a, a postdoctoral fellowship. Uh, we really didn't, didn't have any money for a long time. And then Charlie Grobe did his study. Well, we, we first of all supported a study at the University of Arizona using uh, psilocybin mushrooms to treat people with obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, we we funded the bulk of that study, and MAPS, I think, bought the psilocybin, so it was 10,000. I think we put 50,000, and that was the first clinical study. And it wasn't done uh, correctly. They didn't have enough subjects. Uh, it looked like it might work, but it wasn't definitive. And then uh, Charlie Grobe was the first one who we really funded to do a study of dying cancer patients at UCLA Harbor Medical Center. And we'd gone back and looked at the literature and said, you know, we don't have a lot of money. If we have money, where should we put it where we have the best chance of showing something happening, the biggest bang for the buck? And at the Spring Grove State Hospital, that's what they had been doing, treating cancer patients. And that was actually the earliest indication in the early 1950s was LSD had been given to uh, uh, people with terminal illnesses, and they had remarkable effects. And it was compared with the opiates for analgesia, and LSD was shown to have comparable analgesia, but after the analgesic effect wore off, they had a changed attitude toward their death. And so that was kind of in the early 50s. So that's what they picked up with at Spring Grove State Hospital. So we thought, well, let's do that. And we didn't know whether LSD, whether psilocybin would work because those studies had been done with LSD. And LSD is a different beast than psilocybin. They're both psychedelics. But So you know, we thought, well, let's try that because psilocybin, I've been working to improve the synthesis on psilocybin so we could get synthetic psilocybin. We wouldn't have to use mushrooms. That would make it easier to get the FDA to approve it. And what year is this um, we're talking about? Well, he published a study in 2011. So he okay. probably started in you know, 2006 or thereabouts. Gotcha. About the, about the time that Roland published that first study, he published his first study in 2006. That was also psilocybin that I made for, for Roland. Gotcha. And uh, so that really was the beginning of the psilocybin work. And we had a debate in the Hefter board about what drug to use because LSD had worked. But did we want to use LSD? And we, we thought, you know, we'll have a media feeding frenzy. They'll say, oh, using LSD and dying patients. And we really didn't want to, you know, kick that sleeping dog at that time. Thought we'd stay under the radar. So we thought of the other drugs, mescaline and peyote, you know, it does the same kind of thing, but it lasts a long time. And a lot of people, they get, they get sick and actually vomit when you give it to them. We didn't want to take dying people and make them sicker. Mm-hmm. So psilocybin, nobody knew what psilocybin was. They go, yeah, well, we started an institute to study clinical, do clinical studies with psilocybin. People say, psilocybin, what's that? They go, did you ever hear of magic mushrooms? Oh, yeah, the shrooms back in college. Oh, yeah. So that's what's in shrooms. So, and now everybody knows what psilocybin is. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people. And, but nobody knew when we started. And uh, you had to also, synthesize it because yeah. you can't just give out mushrooms. You have no idea what the dosage is. So yeah. in order to do a proper study... You right. have to measure had, it, right? Yeah, we had to make synthetic psilocybin. So we we pr- improved a key step that had been used. Albert Hoffman had actually made uh, psilocybin synthetically back in the 50s, but he had used a reagent that was really dangerous and could sometimes spontaneously detonate. And so my okay. technician said, my technician said, you know, Stuart, he said, I'm not going to use that reagent. I said, oh, I don't blame you. Let's find another one. So we got this other reagent. That made it a lot easier, and that's what people are using now to put the phosphate group on the psilocybin. It has, it has a phosphate group attached to it. So uh, so that was uh, – so.
something nobody really knew. We thought we'd be under the radar for that. And it's four to six hours. It's much shorter. LSD lasts eight to 10. Mescaline is eight to 10. Um, so that sort of began the psilocybin work. And from there, once we started getting people interested, then we, you know, we did the study from New York University and uh, Johns Hopkins of uh, cancer, cancer patients. Uh, we've done the study treating uh, alcoholics at University of New Mexico. That study's now been expanded at New York University, and he's recruiting 100 alcoholics. Uh, we did we support the study of nicotine addiction and smokers who had made had four failed attempts to quit smoking. That was very successful, and he's expanded that study also at Johns Hopkins. We've got a study now at University of Alabama, Birmingham, looking at psilocybin therapy and cocaine addiction. Right. So we've got also a study starting now with the psilocybin therapy and obsessive compulsive disorder, and also a study that we're getting vetted now protocol for treating uh, anorexia eating disorders with the same therapy. Interesting. So psilocybin has been the thing we basically have focused on at Hefter. And of course, uh, Rick Doblin at MAPS has gotten the MDMA now approved, a breakthrough therapy for treating PTSD. It's very effective in treating PTSD. And uh, there's a UK organization called Compass Pathways, who has recently gotten approval to use psilocybin therapy in treatment-resistant depression. And that's based on the Hefter studies, as well as some studies that were done in Imperial College in the UK. So everything is happening really quickly now. There's still a dearth of money, I might say, but things have happened really quickly. Let me ask you really yeah, quick, because I know people are going to wonder, if you're going to do a proper double-blind placebo trial, how in the world does a placebo work? Because if Keith were taking, he was one of the subjects, he's taking the psilocybin, and I'm taking a placebo, I think I'm going to know that. How would, how would you do that? Yeah, um, <laughs> with great difficulty. Um, if you read this, the, the 2006 paper you referred to earlier by Roland Griffiths about the people who had the experience, they're normal people. He very cleverly, he used a Ritalin, methylphenidate, as a placebo and used a fairly high dose. And he coded in such a way um, because people would have expectancy. So he coded the doses in such a way. So he said, well, you'll get one of a possible four or five different compounds and you won't know what it is till we break the blind. And so then the people that got the high-dose Ritalin, they were people that didn't have experience with the psychedelics. So, okay, they're stimulated, they're feeling very active, et cetera. Uh, so they really wouldn't know. If it was someone who had had a psychedelic, they would have known that, yeah, this isn't, this isn't psilocybin. Um, in the alcohol studies, they've used um, Benadryl, high dose of Benadryl, which apparently does have psychoactive effects at very large doses. Mm -hmm. And in the study at, uh, at New York University in the cancer patients, they use uh, uh, nicotinamide, niacin, as a placebo, and it causes a facial flushing. But, you know, it's... If you're really knowledgeable, if you're a therapist who knows these things pretty well, it's it's pretty difficult to uh, to create a placebo. That's that's a co continuing problem. And when as soon as you start saying what you said, I knew where you're going because we've gotten this question a lot. Like, how do you placebo somebody getting a psychedelic with great difficulty? Yeah. Virtually yeah. impossible. But yeah, never mind the um, the funding issues. Did, were there ever a moment in all this research where you were worried about the legality? Did you worry that the DEA was going to come after you or that, or, um, that there was going to be some sort of a government action? Um, I would say I never really worried. I was optimistic because I've been doing that work in, with the substances, but in the animals or rats and you know mice and things like that since 1969. So I had, for many years had worked with it 
I'd had inspections by the DEA. They knew what I was using. Um, and the FDA, you had a license to do that, right? Right, right. I had 15 different substances on my license. You have to have for Schedule One. You have to have each one explicitly named. Right. So it's it's really a hassle to to work with Schedule One substances. But clinical studies, the Food and Drug Administration is basically made up of scientists. They're supposed to be apolitical. And so if you write up the protocol, so the first protocol that Charlie wrote up for the study at UCLA, it was quite difficult to put it all together and get approval. And, and also the institutional review boards, you know, these are people at your institution that you, they're usually colleagues or maybe there'll be a couple of physicians and some other scientists and they get this, you're going to give a psychedelic to someone who's got a cancer diagnosis. Are you, you know, out of your freaking mind? So there were some difficulties with institutional review boards. So the first study, I would say, was a hassle. And then the next study was less of a hassle. And then by the time you get to the fourth or fifth study, you pass on the template from the previous study. So you say, look, this has been approved at UCLA. It's been approved at Johns Hopkins. It's been approved at New York University. So then it becomes easier. So it's, there's been a progressive momentum building up that's made it easier. And as long as you do these things um, and you follow all the rules, the DEA, the DEA is basically a police organization that prevents diversion. They want to make sure you're not giving it away to anybody. Right. And they, they're actually overzealous in that respect. I think at New York University, they had to have a big a three, an 800-pound safe put in, and then the DEA there mandated that they take out their psilocybin every day and reweigh it and have a witness to make sure none had been taken. <laughs> so that's you know sort of the hassle. You have to have a central pharmacy because this stuff is so dangerous, you know, that nobody can have it. So, uh, but they basically control who keeps it, who gets access to it, et cetera. The FDA just approves the clinical protocol along with the institutional review boards. And if the protocols are set up so that they're safe, you take patient safety as paramount, usually there's not a problem. Um, I think we're far enough down the road now that if some politicians came in and said, what are you doing giving these drugs to people? Um, I think we could say, look, chapter and verse, you know, here's the Imperial College study with treatment-resistant depression. Here's the New York University study with alcoholism. Here's the University of New Mexico. If there's enough momentum now that I think there would be really an outcry from the psychiatric community if they tried to dip this in the butt. Psychiatrists, I think, have not been totally on board because it is a new paradigm. It's something completely different that they're not used to. But I think they're watching with some interest because they're seeing – things happening that, you know, psychiatry hasn't had new drugs. Most of the major drug companies have just gotten out of developing drugs for the CNS because they can't validate the targets. They just right. have, you know, like depression. So how many SSRIs are there out there? I mean, it doesn't. Uh, and there's just no, they don't know what causes depression. So what do you do? Right. So this is, this is a different paradigm completely. And so I think there's a lot of interest. And uh, if, Somebody, if somebody tried to come in with politics and shut it down, I think it'd be very difficult, all, impossible, maybe at this point. But yeah, yeah, I should knock on wood. No, it won't, it won't stop someone from trying, but hopefully, it's, yeah. it's protected by just the sheer weight of science. Um, and speaking of science, obviously, in the forties, the sixties, um, the our neuroscience was very primitive. Well, at least it was much different than the level is that is now. With the advances in neuroscience and in brain mapping and things like that. Are we any closer to understanding how the psychedelics work or even where they work? The, the, the use of these uh, high-tech brain imaging methods is really changing the, the landscape a lot. Um, Robin Card Harris in the UK did the first study of brain imaging with um, psilocybin. But now we've had 
well, I won't say the first because Franz Vollenweider did a PET imaging study back in the 90s, and uh, we had Effie Gazoulas and Leo Hermley were people that also did studies with PET and looking at blood flow. But the really interesting results have come in the last few years where we're seeing that uh, what they really do, I don't know if you can hear this, there's a guy blowing leaves out in the front. Is it quiet enough for you? We can hear it, but I think we're okay. Yeah, okay. Probably can't get rid of him. Um, anyway, um, what they found is, you know, that the brain can, the brain has these anatomical units called uh, nodes or uh, in, in, in dy brain dynamics that sort of communicate with each other. They're anatomical units that sort of talk to each other like little villages. And, but they don't, and they reach out and they talk to other kind of little villages or nodes from time to time, but the communication is basically local. And when you take a psychedelic, the integration inside those nodes breaks down and they, the communication goes global and all the brain pieces sort of start talking to each other. So they know that there are changes in global brain connectivity and dynamics. They've seen it with psilocybin and also with LSD now. They've looked, actually, uh, people who took psychedelics have known for forever that uh, if you take a psychedelic, music is enhanced. And so they've actually done studies now showing the different parts of the brain, and I can't cite chapter and verse, but different parts of the brain turn on differently when you hear music under a psychedelic than when you hear it when you're normal. So um, emotional face recognition, they've looked at, you know, under psychedelics, People take psychedelics and you show them pictures of people who have negative emotion on their face versus happy. The negatives are not perceived as as negative as they would be ordinarily. So psychedelics do a lot of things. They change in mood and that's been tracked to particular changes in brain dynamics. So they're turning out to be really important tools for basically understanding how a lot of the brain connectivity works. And so we have technology today that we didn't have, of course, 50 years ago. And I think at the very least, they're going to be, whether or not they're ever really approved by the FDA for treatment, I think they will be. But even if they weren't, they're going to prove to be really important and valuable tools for understanding how the brain works. Right. Well, let's take a step back yeah. for a moment then, and then we'll get back uh, to where we are. So I was actually looking at this this morning. So we've all heard about Phineas Gage. You know, we look yeah. back to 1848, Phineas was working on a railroad up in Vermont, packing dynamite into a, uh, a hole in, in the, the rock's uh, face. This long... Um, tamping rod. Yeah, tamping rod, exactly. Went right through his head. And it's interesting because it, it, there's always been a, a story that his entire personality changed. He became, you know, almost evil. Apparently now, looking back, some of that may have been exaggerated, but this really is the first documented case where there were changes after someone survived a traumatic brain injury like this. So it, it brought up a lot of questions, you know, about who we are and what, you know, what our underlying brain structures do for us. But take a hundred years later, and we're looking at Hoffman here, we really had no idea about the biochemistry of the brain. And that's when we started really learning about this and psychedelics had a big effect on that. So take us back to 1943, you know, what did we know about the brain at that point? You know, what had been experimented with and what did this do for neuroscience? So we know very little about the brain. Prior to, say, 1950 or so, if you had a child who suffered from schizophrenia, the parents were blamed. 
You did it. You were poor parent. You did a poor job of parenting. You didn't nourish the child. There was a term called refrigerator mothers. These were cold, distant mothers, and that's the reason their children were sick. So the, everything was thought to be based on, you know, nurture rather than nature. And um, so uh, there really wasn't, I mean, psychiatry was all a psychoanalysis. It was all thinking about what's wrong and how to fix yourself. There wasn't any biological psychiatry then. It really wasn't until the discovery or the introduction of chlorpromazine in the mid-50s that started emptying out, you know, mental hospitals. But what happened was in 1943, we had the discovery of the effects of LSD by Albert Hoffman. 1953, a woman working at the Cleveland Clinic in Erwin Page's laboratory named Betty Twarog discovered serotonin in mammalian brain. Prior to that, all the serotonin in the body was thought to be in the gut, in what are called enterochromophone cells in the gut. And they're also involved in blood clotting, in platelets. Mm -hmm. So uh, Betty Twarog had developed an assay using the tractile muscle from an, an edible muscle called a quay hog. And what you do is hang this thing up in an organ bath. And if you squirted serotonin on it, it would contract and then pull the ends of the thread. And you could measure the force of contraction. And so the more serotonin you added, the more it contracted. So you could actually take one of these things, measure the force of contraction. It would be in the order of grams or hundreds of milligrams, and you plot the contraction after a certain amount of serotonin was put in, and then you put a certain additional amount, and you then we get an increased contraction. You could actually develop a dose-response curve that would reflect the force of contraction on the y-axis and then the amount of serotonin on the x-axis. So it was a very precise assay. So she started going through all these different tissues in, in mammals and ass assaying for serotonin. So she wanted to assay a brain, probably cow brain, what she used. And Erwin Page, who was the director of the lab, said, there's no serotonin in the brain. I mean, you're it's wasting amazing. your time, <laughs> wasting your time. And so she analyzed it. Sure enough, she detected serotonin in the brain. So all of a sudden- Talk about a lesson for being thorough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if she had just listened to her mentor and never done that, you know, we, we, you know, we would know, wouldn't have known for a long time. Wow. So she detected it, and that was really a surprise. And everybody but then sort of knew that LSD was this really powerful psychoactive agent that gave people visions and was possibly modeled mental illness. So now suddenly when they looked at this, the chemical structure of serotonin and they looked at the chemical structure of LSD, there's actually a, serotonin is a substitute molecule called a tryptamine. And if you look at LSD, it's got a tryptamine embedded within the structure. And if you saw those structures, you, you wouldn't have to be a rocket scientist to go, well, those look kind of similar, you know, and LSD produces these unbelievable effects and, and there's serotonin in the brain. So if you look at the published scientific literature in, in 1953, the year of that discovery, virtually all the scientific literature had to do with serotonin in the gut and the platelets, its involvement in blood clotting, etc. But then shortly after, what you start seeing is an exponential rise increasing, looking at serotonin in the brain. What is serotonin doing in the brain? And so it increased and increased and went up and up and up. That was really the beginning of serotonin neuroscience. And you could say maybe neuroscience in general. So the discovery of LSD, that was kind of a, a really important event. But it also was a catalysis that led to understanding, the beginning of understanding about neurochemistry. And then suddenly people could say, well, maybe brain chemistry has something to do with behavior, which seems ridiculous. I mean, today, you know, 
didn't everybody always know that? They actually didn't know that before the discovery of LSD. That's extraordinary. You have to take a minute to think, too. I mean, these parents were being blamed for something like oh, this. Yeah. That it's just... Uh, and they believe the doctors. The doctors yeah. are telling them this. I mean, like, oh, God, what did I do wrong? You know, oh, I've got this sick child. So this completely changed the landscape, and people realize there's chemistry going on up there, and that's determining your behavior. Well, we're getting in your wheelhouse now, so I think, you know, we're, we're going to tread carefully here because uh, uh, some of our listeners are going to have to dig back to organic chemistry uh, a little <laughs> bit, but uh, let's talk about what we do know. There's a lot we don't still, but what is actually happening when you take LSD? I mean, what is it affecting, which transmitters, and okay. what is it doing as far as we know at this point? So the principal target for all the psychedelics, including LSD, is a type of serotonin receptor called the serotonin 2A receptor. The serotonin 2 receptor is a very ancient receptor. They're, they think the serotonin may be the most ancient neurotransmitter because there are 14 different subtypes. Uh, so serotonin 2A is expressed widely throughout the brain, particularly on what are called pyramidal cells in the cortex. If you look at the architecture of the cortex, you have these columns of processing units that are made up of inhibitory and excitatory cells that all impinge. But the central units in these are these cortical, they're called cortical pyramidal cells. They're kind of like the central processing unit in little tiny computers, you might think. And so serotonin, when it interacts with serotonin 2A receptors, it makes these cells more excitable. So uh, they Basically, it increases their gain, so they become more responsive to uh, lower levels of signal. You might think of it that way. Um, so the things that, I mean, this is a crude analogy, but things that are not available to your conscious mind suddenly rise to that level because now you're sort of like over, like overclocking a computer. You're, uh, you're feeling and sensing things that uh, normally you wouldn't because the cort these cortical cells, and they're all throughout the cortex, they take all the information that comes in, your, all your sensory information except for smell, your hearing, tactile, touch, everything. It all goes through an area called the thalamus, which sort of gates what gets sent to the cortex. And the cortex is your executive area of the brain where you make your decisions about what you're doing, sort of your, the state of your mind, whatever. So that is fundamentally changed dramatically by the activation of these serotonin 2A receptors. They're, and the two receptors are really ancient. They go back into uh, even single-celled organisms like paramecium. So they're a receptor that evolved very early on and has been retained by nature. So when nature finds something that works, usually it's retained through evolution. So they're really central to, to life, essentially. So you're saying, so if we look at our optical pathways, obviously it's what I'm looking at if, if I'm on a psychedelic trip starts to change. Sometimes it's like augmented reality. Um, I just saw that earlier actually this week in a lab where they're actually just able to superimpose anatomy over a surgery. But sometimes you can see what's around you. Sometimes I guess you can't, but it's, it seems to be blocking those pathways, but allowing something else in. Is that correct? So, um, cause it's still your brain that's creating this at the end of the day, these yeah. images that you see. Yeah. you but your brain, um, for example, you have, um, binocular rivalry in your vision where your eyes see different things and usually it's they go back and forth and there's a frequency 
to that binocular rivalry. And under a psychedelic, it changes so that you can actually see two different things at the same time. They'll merge. So it expands the capacity of your vision. I mean, they really are mind expansion drugs. They expand your ability to perceive things. Um, you know, I, don't, I don't know how far we can take that, but um, they really are mind expanding. You, you, you see things, you think things. Um, the best definition of a psychedelic that I, the one that I like, was in a, a big text on pharmacology called Goodman and Gilman's Pharmacological Basis of Therapeutics. Um, and in there, there's a chapter in the seventh and eighth editions by Jerome Jaffe. And he says, psychedelics produce changes in thought and feelings that are not or cannot be uh, felt uh, other than during uh, dreams or religious exaltation. And now, as a definition for a class of pharmacological agents, I mean, you know, oh yeah, what do they do? They they change your thought and give you perception of things that normally you wouldn't have unless you were dreaming or having a religious experience. And that's, you know, kind of actually what they do. So, so it is, is it similar to dreams? I mean, if you're looking at brain imaging scans? They can, it's, some of them, yeah, they can be. But it's not necessarily the same thing. It, it, it varies. Um, people are all different. It depends on the situation. Um, they, the brain dynamics have suggested that uh, the visions you have under high-dose psychedelics are similar to dreaming in terms of the different areas of the brain that are activated. But we're just at, you know, it's, we're still at a rudimentary level in understanding a lot of that. Why do you think the, um, the effects are so long-lasting? Um, we talk about the fact you only have to take uh, a psychedelic once and then the effects will go on you know, for an extended period of time and, and maybe even a lifetime. What, what is it about their, their effect and their function that, that leads to this longstanding uh, effect? So the, the drug doesn't have a continue. Well, the drug per se doesn't have an effect. Like we think of when right. you take a drug and it stays in the body and then it's excreted. At that. Um, but I would point out that we, the lab I work in, we published a crystal structure of LSD in the serotonin 2B receptor, which is similar to the 2A receptor. We published it in January of 2017. LSD actually gets in the receptor, and there's a piece of the receptor, it's a protein, that folds over the LSD and traps it in there. So it takes hours and hours to get back out. So it does stay in the receptor for a long time, which explains the eight, probably part of the 8 to 10 hour effect. But what you're talking about is these long-lasting effects, like um, Roland Griffiths' lab has reported, in, in, in increases in the um, personality characteristics of openness, for example. Personality is thought to be pretty much immutable after a certain age, that almost nothing can change in who you are and your basic personality. And of course, you can have serious trauma. Uh, you can have um, serious, uh, significant emotional trauma. Things like that can change your personality. But normally... Who you are, I doubt that any one of the three of us have really are any different than when maybe when we were little, other than we have hopefully a little more wisdom. But um, but this this change in your personality of making you more open, more humanitarian, more charitable, more uh, receptive to different ideas, uh, that no one knows why that is. And that's really one of the salutary effects of these, I think. There's been a lot of debate about, you know, why shouldn't normal people be able to take these just to, like, improve their personality? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe someday we'll get to that point. The FDA right now wants you to have some pathological condition that you're trying to treat. But I think it may be possible at some point in the future just for some ordinary person to go in 
you know, having a midlife crisis and say, you know, I want a psychedelic session and, and just to improve your perspective on things. And the but positive that, outlook is much more common, isn't it? I mean, does anybody yeah. ever go the opposite direction or? Well, I think people that have bad trips probably mm-hmm. go in the opposite direction, but, uh, and nobody, I mean, nobody's really quantified that if you, you know, you don't, there's no way to have a prospective study where you take ordinary people and you do some personality test on them and then you come back 10 years later and say, did you ever take a psychedelic? And now let's do it again and see what happened to the, the personality test again. So there, it'd be hard to do a prospective study like that. But uh, in my experience, a lot of people who have used psychedelics tend to be progressive Democrats or progressives. And, uh, yeah, maybe that's... And they haven't become another, Republicans uh, because of it. Yeah, they don't. I don't know anybody that's gone that direction. I, I think the Republicans have gone the other direction. Or Republicans just don't like psychedelics. I don't know. Yeah, I don't tell them politics. you're not going to get uh, very much voter support for this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you really quick. We're coming close to the hour. Do you have time if we go a little bit over here? Or? Yeah, sure. Great. Okay. Um, what would be a cutoff for you? Just uh, Whenever we finish. Fair enough. <laughs> Actually, I got a lot more questions. So I appreciate <laughs> it. Okay. So back to the mechanism of action. Let's Let's take a little step back in your career. I don't think I really asked you this. I mean... What initially were you planning to do when you went to graduate school and in your PhD program? Was it this initially? What 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 inspired your path? Yeah, I hope to do this. Um, I grew up in Cincinnati and uh, didn't have any money to go away to school, so I lived with my parents and commuted over to University of Cincinnati. They had a co-op program, and that was the way I could get through school. I could. My parents had my first quarter tuition, and then I could work every other quarter after that and pay my own tuition. And so I lived at home, big mistake, but um, missed out on all the college stuff. You know, I'd, I'd go in on Monday and I'd, I'd, I'd take a, a computer program in Fortran 1. This is how long ago it was. And I couldn't figure something out. And they'd say, oh, yeah, we all got together over the weekend and went through, and this is the problem. This is how you solve it. And so I was missing all the stuff of interacting with the other students. But anyway, I had friends in college that went away, University of Kentucky, University of Oregon, et cetera, and they'd come back and they're talking about LSD and marijuana and all that stuff. And at first they were talking about smoking reefer. Reefer, what's that? Uh, marijuana. And so I thought, you guys are going to get addicted. You know, what are you doing? Oh, they were laughing at me. So I kind of <laughs> didn't like that. So I went to a I went to a used bookstore and bought a, a book on pharmacology, Solon's Handbook of Pharmacology from the 40s, and I read in there, and marijuana was safe, and there had been all these studies, and it wasn't addictive, and I thought, well, this isn't what we've all been told. So then I started doing more research to find out about these other things, and finding out, yeah, they're not toxic, they're not addictive, and so I sort of became kind of a drug guru for the people that I knew, because I'd go over to the library at the University of Cincinnati, and I could get reprints and papers, and get literature on it. And then there so was a weekend worked. trip to Boston with Timothy Leary, wasn't there? Uh, no, I only, <laughs> met, I only met him once. I wasn't at his place. But uh, so I thought, well, this would be cool to work on. And these are really powerful because I'm reading all these reports of people having these life-changing experiences and, you know, having a trip and witnessing the birth of the universe and watching the evolution of man. I thought, oh, this is amazing. How's the drug doing this? And so uh, I thought I would do that. Well, there was nobody doing that kind of research. And I'd look through the graduate record, you know, the, all the programs. And the only thing I could find was a guy at University of Iowa named Joe Cannon, who had been studying compounds related to atropine. Um, and atropine is a really 
it's not really a psychedelic, but it makes people really crazy. Um, and they get out of touch with reality. I thought, well, you know, at least I can learn something about drugs that have an effect like that. And I went to work for him and he had applied and I had a national defense education fellowship, which is just after Sputnik. And so they were funding STEM programs. Right. And so I, I had one to study chemistry. So he'd applied for that and got that for me. And I went to, uh, I went to join the program and sat down and he said, well, here's what I, I have in mind for you. And, uh, so that fellowship allowed you to pursue whatever you wanted. Is well, that yeah. True? Yeah. Right. Wow. What but an Joe, opportunity. Yeah. But Joe Cannon didn't, wasn't doing that anymore. He said, Oh, I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. I've got another project making these apomorphine analogs and apomorphine makes you vomit really badly and it doesn't have any CNS effects. So my understanding was he had a contract from the defense department to make these things and say, so you could spray them over the troops and they'd all be retching their guts out. And so that would be the way you'd stop the war. <laughs> so, <clears throat> and all the, and all the literature was in German, this old German literature. And I, and I had to take a course in reading German. I really hated German. I thought, Oh my God, I'm working on something. I came here to work on something and this isn't it. And I'm going to have to read all this German literature. And he thought I wanted to get out of grad school really quickly because I actually had, I was two years in chemical engineering and I just hated engineering. I dropped out and I thought I'd work for a while and go back to school as a chemistry major. But then I got married and then my wife got pregnant and I thought, okay, that's not going to happen. So University of Cincinnati had an evening college division. So I finished my degree working at night. So I'd work a full you know, eight hour day. Then I'd go to University of Cincinnati at night and I'd go to class for three or four hours and I'd come home. I did that for five and a half years. So I was kind of really burned out. So when I got to grad school, all I had to do was take two classes or three classes and work in the lab. And that was it. So it was like a vacation. So I was in no hurry to finish grad school because I was having a lot of fun. Yeah. Or I was going to, going to have a lot of fun. So he thought, you know, you'll get this project wrapped up really quick. You get out, get a job, start making money for your family again. And it was like, well, that's what lots of people wanted to do. But that wasn't what I wanted to do at that point in time. <laughs> so, so he said, no, although I applied for this fellowship for you, you can work for any of the other faculty in the department. It was a small department. So I talked to one fellow who was doing analytical chemistry, analyzing pesticide residues, and I thought, I don't want to do that. And then I talked to this guy, Charles Barfneck, and he hadn't published anything in the field. I didn't know anything about what he was doing. He said, well, on my projects, I've got this one fellow named Tim who's working on some contraceptives from some plants from Asia, and I've got this guy making mescaline metabolites. I said, what? Mescaline metabolites? What's he doing? So he, he started telling me. And it turned out I knew more about the subject than he actually did. And what year was this? 1969. So a year after LSD was scheduled, right? And psilocybin. In California, but, yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, a year before. Yeah. So, so, uh, so, so Alexander Shogun had just published a paper called one, something about one-ring psychotomimetics, where he had t taken all the work that he'd done on these simple mescaline analogs and he published it. And I had memorized chapter and verse of everything that was in there. <clears throat> so Professor Barfdeck and I got in back and forth and, you know, he'd say, well, this, I say, yeah, this is what Shogun did. Oh, what about this? Yeah, Sasha did that too. And oh yeah, we could do this. So he got really excited because I had a fellowship and I wouldn't cost him any money. Plus I would have money for supplies. Plus your mentor got money. So this was a win-win for him. Here's this guy who's got all these great ideas. He's got a fellowship and I get some money besides. So I decided to work for him. And he basically just turned me loose in the lab and just said, go for it. And so I did you know, pretty much whatever I wanted and uh, made lots of compounds. I had the biggest thesis of any graduate student that had been in the program at that point. I had the most publications of any graduate student they'd ever had. 
And Joe Cannon, the guy who I went there to work for, had I heard indirectly he had told people that I was the best graduate student they'd ever turned out there. So that was kind of nice. Yeah. So, uh, and while I was there, they had a collaboration with the pharmacology department. They had the pharmacology department, this guy named John P. Long, J.P. Long, and they'd been collaborating with him. And so I went over to the pharmacology department and they took some of the compounds I'd been making and started studying those. So I became kind of a pharmacology groupie, a pharmacology group. <laughs> and so I was watching everything they were doing and, you know, look at how they, and I'd assist sometimes. And so while I have a reaction cooking over in the pharmacy building, I was right next door in the medical school, watch them do a dissection on, you know, some frog tissue or cat tissue or whatever. So when I finished my PhD, which I finished in kind of record time, um, I thought, well, yeah, maybe I should do a postdoc in pharmacology. And J.P. Long had a student who was uh, going to enter medical school and was getting a master's in pharmacology. And I'd ask him to test some compounds of mine. He was using a, a mouse assay. He said, you know, I'd like to do that, but I need to get my thesis written. And there's one compound that I haven't been able to get because this Barfneck student uh, hadn't been able to make it. And he made it a couple of times. And every time Jim tested it, it gave different results. And so I said, well, what's a compound? He showed the structure. I said, I'll, I'll make some of this for you. So I went over basically over the weekend and made it. wasn't a difficult synthesis. This guy had been doing the wrong chemistry, and it just destroyed it in the last step. And so I knew what he'd done wrong, so I made it. And I had this bottle, a big honking big crystals. It looked like if you've seen rock candy, you know what rock candy is? Right. They were crystals about that size. And so back in those days, we didn't have uh, – word processors, but you had these plastic sheets of rub-on letters. So you'd lay it on a white piece of paper and you'd rub on it. You could transfer it to transfer. So I made this label. I put the structure and I put the name and it's like 10 grams or whatever. And I, and then you'd have the name of the chemical company. I put sheer grace of God chemical company because he'd been trying to get this for a long time. So I actually met JP in the hall and I gave it to him. I said, Hey JP, I think Jim wants this. He looked at it. He looked at those crystals He'd never seen anything like that. And then he saw the Sure Grace of God chemical company. He just bust out laughing. <laughs> so I said, I'm thinking about doing a postdoc in pharmacology. What do you think? Can I get a place over there? He said, oh, I think we can work in. So then I just went right from the pharmacy school over to the medical school and, and did a postdoc in pharmacology there. So that sort of really broadened my horizons as a medicinal chemist. So then I really learned a lot of the elements of pharmacology. I set in a lot of the courses, audited a lot of the courses over there. So with my chemistry, medicinal chemistry, and then the pharmacology, that was just an ideal background for me. And this is about 1973 we're talking about? Yeah, I, yeah, my, that's my official thesis date. I finished up actually in January, I think, of 73. So at this point, I mean, it's LSD and some of these psychedelics are already illegal. Did that change yeah. your outlook on this? Uh, I mean, well, how did that affect your plan to yeah, research? So, so, I was, so that was the end of my first semester in grad school. The Controlled Substance Act was passed. And made everything illegal. And I thought, you know, I'm going to do research on these. So this, the CSA was passed. I thought, well, you know, too bad about that. So I thought, what I'll do is just do this as long as I can as a grad student and postdoc. And then, you know, that'll be my 15 minutes of fame or whatever. So I went over to pharmacology and continued to work on some of the same kinds of compounds. They were analogs of mescaline, DOM, DOB, things like that. So I kept doing that. And then when I started looking for a job, I basically had two job choices. One was to go to work for a company up back in the Northeast doing research on oral contraceptives. And I thought, yeah, well, okay. And that didn't really turn me on. Or the other was 
I had this academic position at Purdue, and they were looking for somebody that had a background in chemistry with some knowledge in biology or pharmacology, and it seemed like it would just fit me perfectly. <clears throat> so I interviewed at Purdue and got offered the position, just started there. And so I was able to do whatever I wanted in an academic position. So I just continued doing the same kind of thing I'd been doing. So what did you start working on initially, and what were you doing you know, these intervening years, you know, between, you know, the you know, Substance Control Act and then, you know, once things started looking, you know, a little brighter in the 80s. So the a question that was sort of behind all my research was if, if you knew what the structure of mescaline was and you knew what the structure of LSD was, and you look at those two and say they both have the same pharmacology, they both activate these serotonin 2A receptors, but they're very different structures. How do they do that? What's the receptor look like? that it can accommodate both of those and is activated by both of those different types of chemicals. So I started doing structures, making structures based around the mescaline template, but changing the shape of the molecules, putting different substituents on, trying to see how much I could make it look like LSD and was that really what was happening. It turns out that they, there is no similarity really. They bind in completely different ways as we ultimately found out. We don't know how mescaline binds. We know how LSD binds now. Hmm. And probably the, trip to, the tryptamines bind sort of in the same way. But the phenethylamines are still a mystery. Uh, nobody's published crystal structure. We did a lot of work on the receptor, the 2A receptor. We mutated a lot of the amino acids in there and put made a lot of mescaline analogs and tried to find out, well, if we change this residue and put this analog in, what happens? Trying to figure out if there was some way we could see how it was actually fitting in. We never really could come up with an idea. And I think we'll have to wait till somebody publishes a crystal structure of one of these phenethylamines in the receptor before we know. So uh, you also had the license from the, uh, well, not the FDA at that point. It was the DEA, uh, DEA right? right? So. Just uh, I, so I understand. I mean, is is this de is this license perpetual? Do you have to renew it every year? And you're no. probably one of the few to have this at this point, right? Yeah. Um, when I started in 1974, got my first license. Um, you basically had to just write a protocol um, or have a grant, and then you get it approved, and you could get the substance. Now they've changed. Now, now. Uh, they are time limited. They, they say, no, you have a grant for three years. But at the end of three years, you need to surrender the drug because you don't need it anymore. Um, or you'd have to, you have to calculate, say, I'm going to treat 50 rats and I'm going to give, him, give them so many milligrams per kilogram of body weight. So that means I need, you know, X milligrams of LSD. And so you'd send that in with the calculation and they say, OK, they approved you for that amount. And then when you used it up and the rats were done, they didn't used to care but then, more recently, they do care. They want to know, well, why are you still using it? And the last inspection I had before I retired, which has been 2010 or 2011, the DA people came in and uh, they said, well, why do you need all these? Do you have a protocol for all these? And I said, well, I have a general grant that covers the way I use these. And well, where, where's your protocol that tells me how much of this you need, how much of that you need, how much of this you need? I said, I don't work that way. My research is not like this boilerplate you're used to. I said, we take the receptor and we make mutations in the receptor. And then we want to take a whole host of compounds, a library of compounds, and put each one in and see what effect that had. And we don't know what we're going to find. We don't know which one. So we, I can't say that we need five milligrams of this because four months from now we're going to put it in this particular receptor and this kind of thing happens. So they basically accepted that, but they are, that's not the template they want. The template they want for most people is 
you want to get this drug and you're going to do it, you're going to give it to X number of mice at such and such a dose. And okay, you're approved to get three milligrams of this stuff. And then that's it. And if you needed more, you'd have to write another protocol. Uh, I actually was making LSD because we had rats trained to recognize the effects of LSD. And we had a colony of rats almost the whole time I was at Purdue from 84 on until I retired. They were trained to recognize the effects of LSD. And so we had to make our own LSD. We couldn't depend on getting a source from National Store Drug Abuse. They'd send you a few milligrams, and we needed 150 milligrams a year. And what does LSD so, do to a rat? What do you observe? At the, in the doses we used, you didn't see anything. They okay. looked completely normal. And if you give it a higher dose, they'll start having different behaviors. But at the doses we used for drug discrimination, you couldn't see anything. And the last inspection they came in, I had a vial that had LSD and it had LSD and I was 150 milligrams or something, something like that. And he picked up, he says, is this really LSD? I said, yeah. And he put it down like it was a hot potato. <laughs> and like, this, they always, you know, they don't, they really, the DEA, a lot of the DEA people, when it comes to psychedelics, they really don't know anything about them. They just, they know the, the law, their schedule one, they're dangerous. Right. Um, LSD is not really that dangerous. And so the idea that he would be afraid to even hold the vial or whatever is kind of you know, ridiculous. So I got to ask you, and you may not want to answer this, but was there ever a time you tried it yourself? Let's just say I was a child of the 60s. <laughs> Good answer. I like that. I, I, I would imagine, I mean, there, there had to be a balance, right? I mean, you don't want to do anything that jeopardizes your work, but at the same time, how could you not be curious about it? So... Yeah, I couldn't have been. I couldn't have been a pharmacy professor at a midwestern conservative university if I'd been using all kinds of drugs. Absolutely. If, well, and then grant funding too. I mean, that had to be a little tight for this type of research, right? How did, how did that? Work? I was one of the few. I was one of the few people that had a grant to study psychedelics. I also had a grant to study MDMA or ecstasy for about ten or twelve years. Wow. Um, I had a grant from National Institute of Drug Abuse for twenty nine years. They funded my work continuously. And it was basically focused on understanding the relationship between the structure of the molecule and the effect it had. Why why did psychedelics have this effect? What were the important parts of the molecule? What was the important shape of the molecule? So my work was really focused more on that than anything therapeutic. When I had the MDMA grant, uh, that was when MDMA first got really big and I got a, a grant to study that. We were making analogs of MDMA. Um, now they would be controlled substance analogs, but they weren't. There wasn't a, an analogs built in. And my idea then was that MDMA, since it had its genesis as a street drug, it would never make it, never be approved as a as a real medicine. So I thought, well, let me figure out what it does. Maybe I can make some drugs that do the same thing and come up with something that's a novel structure that didn't come off the you know black market and it can be developed as a drug. So that was my idea was to find out what it what they do and then make a drug that sort of did the same thing but didn't have that black market origin. And uh, I had a grant for 10 or 12 years, I think, just to do that work. But then they started wanting this neurotoxicity and MDMA came out. And then all they seemed to want to know was why MDMA was damaging neurons. And I wasn't really interested in why MDMA was damaging neurons. We published some papers on that, and I think we showed what happens, why, it, why it's toxic in high doses. But that wasn't my interest, and so I just... So I'm not doing this anymore. Well, speaking of toxicity, as far as I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, no one has ever died from LSD, and there doesn't seem to be a maximum dose that's known that has caused harm 
And besides a bad trip, is that true? No one has ever died from taking a reasonable dose of LSD. Okay. There are two cases of deaths where we don't know how much they took. Uh, in the one case, it was estimated that this individual must have used intravenous dose of something like 340 milligrams. Wow. That's 340,000 micrograms. And they found him dead in a warehouse. And so there was, this is an estimate. And then another fellow who died, uh, they don't know exactly how much he had, but they must have been massive doses. So these are people who probably had contact with the manufacturer and were able to get a vial of pure crystalline LSD. But, you know, 340,000 micrograms is, you know, when the standard dose is like 100 micrograms, wow. you know, no one, no one would take that unless they wanted to kill themselves. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's really safe. In fact, I've, I wrote a paper called Is LSD Toxic that we published based on a couple of uh, reports. The, the police still, are, still seem to have this attitude that LSD is a dangerous drug. Um, it has psychological dangers, but it doesn't kill you. It's not like fentanyl or something like that. Right. And I, and I saw a couple of cases where people had been, the, the report had been that they died of toxic effects of LSD. And there was a, a fellow in Mississippi, and there was a, a woman at a, a music show in California. Both of them had their death. And I had the plasma levels of LSD in both of those cases, and they, they were not out of the ordinary. They were just a single dose or less. So I thought, you know, it seems to me like there's a misunderstanding. So I wrote, I surveyed all the papers where there had been any death associated with LSD. And the deaths were not caused by LSD. They were associated with like people who had been hogtied or had been physically abused in some way. They would say, oh, it was, it was caused by the LSD. So I published that paper with Charlie Grobe recently because we wanted to make the case that this LSD is not toxic because the information that a lot of the police departments had, had and even some of the medical uh, doctors who'd done autopsies was uh, seriously out of date. Sure. So I wanted to correct that perception. So yeah, you don't you don't die from a reasonable overdose of a reasonable dose of LSD. You can you can go swimming and drown, or you can walk out in a right. highway and get hit by a car because you don't know where you are. But you know you can die that way, but not from the direct effects of LSD. And it's not addictive, as far as we know, right? No, and in fact, if you take it every day, it loses its effect. Hmm. Yeah. So as I actually, yeah, I was going to ask if the body has a resistance to it after a time, but there doesn't seem to be a real desire from a lot of people to take it again. It's, it has that much of a powerful effect initially, right? You don't find, I mean, there are people who abuse anything. You don't find many people though, who, who take a dose of a large dose of psychedelic and say, I've got to do that again. You know, it's kind of, okay. You know, I spent an hour, I spent 10 hours introspecting and listening to music and all, and I need to think about what happened. And, you know, maybe a couple months later they take it again, but I mean, it's more episodic use. Usually it's done basically by late adolescents, early adults are the ones, and mostly they're experimenting because they've heard about it. Now, this sounds interesting. Let's try it. And most likely some of them have, are taking two things at once or something else they're unaware of, too, because these are well, illegal drugs on the street. So You don't know, you know, caveat emptor. You don't know what you're getting on the street. So some people, you know, there's a there's some substances we worked on called N-bone compounds. 
And they actually are really potent and have killed some people. And they're so potent they were put on blotters and were sold as LSD. And then people would take two or three of them and had died of overdoses. So that's a really toxic drug. But LSD itself is not is not toxic. Well, can we talk a little about the default mode network? I mean, this is something I've read about. It seems to have an effect on this as far as, you know, the idea of this default network in the brain. Tell us about that and what these things may be doing to affect that. So the default mode network was discovered about a decade or two ago <clears throat> by people who were looking at the um, brain glucose utilization. And when people were not doing anything, they were just sitting, just being mindful, contemplating, whatever. There were areas in the brain that were using a lot of energy, a lot of glucose. <clears throat> and they thought, what is this all about? And if you're doing, if you're doing tasks, it, it changes. You don't have the energy goes to, you know, auditory task or visual task or whatever. But if you're just sitting, kind of contemplating, daydreaming, there's this area of the brain that uses a lot of energy. So that was named the default mode network because when you're not doing anything, that's kind of the default mode network. And uh, it's involved in, uh, you know, contemplative things, uh, you know, daydreaming. Uh, and when you take a psychedelic, and that's... You know, I talked about these different areas that communicate with each other. So the default mode network is one of the areas that's central to communicate with these other areas. And so when you take a psychedelic, the structure of it, the way the default mode network, its internal structure and dynamics are broken down. And so they expand the so you have communication in all parts of the brain. So Robin Carter Harris has proposed that the collapse of the default mode network is ego loss. So if you think like we all have an ego, presumably, where is it? You might be able to draw a crude analogy and say, well, the default mode network kind of represents the ego. So according to what Robin has said, the, the failure of that default mode network to maintain its dynamic, brain dynamic structure represents the loss of that ego, and it connects out to these other regions of the brain. So it's, it's, the, it's the loss of the integrity of the communication within the default mode network and its reach in its increasing global connectivity with other areas of the brain that, that happens with the psychedelic. So is meditation similar to this? And I've, I've read that doing brain imaging scans, what they see happen can be similar to a psychedelic in that there's a suppression of this ego and the default mode network. Is that right? Yeah, I don't know whether they have. Um, yeah, I don't know about meditation with the default mode network. I know Franz Vollenweider has done a big study, but I don't think it's been published, where they took monks and they had EEG caps, multiple, I forget how many electrodes, on their scalp. And then they meditated, and it was a place in Switzerland that this guy has. It's uh, whatever you call these meditation places. And uh, and they had given, gave him psilocybin versus you know, just meditation. So I think in some cases there are similarities, but also some of the people who have taken a psilocybin change their meditative practice. They see things in a somewhat different way. So it can even affect you there. So I don't know if they're exactly the same, but um, my impression is from the things I've heard that it they can put you in kind of the same space. Interesting. So something else that's come up recently Maybe not that recently, maybe just to me hearing about it is low or microdosing rather. So apparently this is a little more popular in Silicon Valley. Uh, 
people who do this are taking very, very small doses that do not lead to hallucinogenic effects, but they report greater creativity, different way of looking at problems. What do we know about this right now? And is there any legitimate research that's been done or being uh, planned right now? Um, when people ask me about that, I say in the absence of a placebo controlled randomized trial, I don't think there's any evidence that it works. It's a great meme. You know, you hear it all the silly. Oh yeah. The placebo effect is really powerful. Right. Um, it's so, it's so powerful that it can affect things. I remember I read a story recently about someone who had some kind of a gastrointestinal disorder and, uh, had terrible pain. And so they were given a placebo in, in a trial and they went back and they said, these people that got placebo had amazing results. Like this shouldn't have done anything. So it's not just CNS effects where we know placebos work for antidepressants and, and analgesics, things like that, painkillers. But it also will work for all kinds of other somatic ailments. So they really found out placebos are much more powerful than people used to think. But we always knew in terms of a central nervous system test, placebos were, you know, you had to eliminate the placebo effect. It's everything. Is, it, is the drug better than placebo? So... Uh, I haven't been convinced, and the paper was just published um, that looked at microdosing, 5, 10, and 20 micrograms of LSD in a geriatric population. And uh, the only thing they reported was that there was some change in the perception of time. They didn't publish any of the effects on cognition, but I know someone who's familiar with the study, and they say they didn't really find anything else. Those data will be published in short order. So the only study that's out there that has used the randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study has not really found anything. There are a lot of people that, you know, oh, we should do this. You know, we need to run a study and show it. I know Amanda Fielding from the Beckley Institute, she wants to do a study with microdosing where she has people play this game of Go. Right, right. She knows you know, it's one of her favorite games. She says, oh, you know, I want to see if it makes you better at playing Go. I think... Um, I think ultimately, my opinion is ultimately it's going to be found that it doesn't do anything at microdoses. It's been really nice and people have the perception, you know, oh yeah, microdosing LSD or psilocybin or whatever. But uh, I don't think there's any real evidence for there. Well, there's no evidence for it, even though there, you know, Jim Fadiman is the guy who's been the proponent of this and has been collecting anecdotal reports from people that, but you don't know what they had. You don't really know what their doses are. Right. So I'm going to continue to believe it until I see proof positive that this is interesting story, but that there's no substance to it. Yeah. Cause it's even like a lot of these websites now, these brain training games that you can play online and yeah, you might get better at playing tic-tac-toe or do it faster, but that, that's not necessarily transferable yeah. into anything useful in life. Yeah. Let me ask you uh, really briefly here, just, just so we can touch on it. You, know, you talked about analogs and a lot of the things that you're experimenting with. You had a column in the journal Nature in 2011 where you talked about some of the risks of this, right? That publishing some of this research can obviously fall into the wrong hands. Give us an idea of what, what you were talking about in that article and, and some of the risks of doing this research. Well, that's happened to, you know, there's a fellow named John Huffman who worked at Clemson University. He's responsible possible for a lot of the spice compounds mm -hmm. he made them as a, you know they were trying to study cannabinoid receptors and he published papers that had you know 100 different analogs and they're all jwh compounds and said they're easy to make so he's really been upset about that 
I came across this because we made a compound called MTA, methylthioamphetamine. And we made it in our studies of trying to find analogs that had an MDMA-like effect. So we had an assay that used rats that were trained to recognize the effects of MDMA. That was the primary assay. Well, the problem is rats only pick up this ability of a drug to release serotonin when we train with MDMA. The MDMA releases norepinephrine, releases dopamine, and does some other things. The rats can only pick up on one particular piece of that. So they were giving us false positives. So MTA was one of the most potent compounds we had found that was a selective serotonin releasing agent. So it had taken up into nerve terminals that had serotonin and caused the serotonin to be released. So it was a a serotonin releaser, whereas something like amphetamine or methamphetamine, they release dopamine and norepinephrine primarily. So an MDMA releases serotonin, but also releases dopamine and norepinephrine. So we thought, well, what are these things good for? It's a serotonin releaser. So the SSRIs, like Prozac and Zolo, things like that, they block the reuptake of serotonin into the neurons. So they increase serotonin concentrations in the synapse in the brain. So we thought, well, a releaser might work the same way. We give it, it'll release serotonin in the same way that you know, SSRI would work. Right. So we actually we set up a model with rats using unpredictable stress. And if you, uh, if you stress rats, you turn the lights on at various times, you make a lot of noise, they get stressed, and you can measure that because if you give them drinking water and you give right next to it a, a solution of sugar, normal rats will prefer to drink the sugar solution. Mm-hmm. But when they get stressed, they don't have a preference anymore. They've lost that ability to presumably to enjoy the sweet taste, so it's a model of depression. So we took those rats that those rats that had been stressed in this unpredictable way, and then we looked at their responses after MTA, and we compared it with a standard. I think we might have used uh, citalopram. I'm not sure now, but it was one of the SSRIs, and we showed that MTA worked better than the SSRI in relieving depression in these rats. So we thought we published it. We said, well, this stuff might be good for treating depression. Well. Black market chemists had seen our results in rats that showed that this compound MTA substituted in rats, and so the rats thought it was MDMA. So they thought, oh, this is a really potent compound. The rats think it's like MDMA. Let's make it and see if it's you know like that in humans. They didn't realize that you know the rats only pick one component of MDMA up. So they made a bunch of tablets with this in, which curiously enough were were called flatliners. Um, if you know what flatline means, <clears throat> not good, not good. And so I, th- I think what happened was when they took these tablets, they didn't really have an MDMA like effect. So they thought, well, let's take two or let's take three. And they took multiple tablets trying to have an effect. And the thing that they didn't know was what happens to serotonin in the body is broken down by an enzyme called monoamine oxidase that destroys it. And, um, MTA inhibits monoamine oxidase. We, we hadn't done those studies. I didn't know it until later. Someone else did a study of these things as inhibitors of that enzyme. So people would take these compounds, MTA, a potent release of serotonin. So their system, their blood system would be flooded with serotonin, and that alone would be toxic. It can produce something called a serotonin syndrome where you, your body temperature goes up, you have seizures, and you go into a coma, die. It's very dangerous. It can happen with other drugs. But... Um, so what they were doing is taking something that was releasing massive amounts of serotonin into the blood, and then 
that same drug was also blocking the breakdown. So you had this huge buildup of serotonin and people were dying. So that was a, a case where somebody took something we'd worked on as potentially an, a note and maybe a new antidepressant and had put it out in black market pills and some people died, I think six or seven people. So that kind of, that was the first case where I really realized that, you know, our, our work was being pilfered for the wrong reasons. And now all, all kinds of things we've made are out there that uh, we made as tools to study the pharmacology. But with the Internet, it's so easy to get papers and you can buy stuff in the dark web and chemicals. And so these things are proliferating pretty rapidly. Yeah, I just wonder if maybe legalizing some things that are generally safe might, you know, people wouldn't be looking for these other options to try to stay ahead well, of the schedulization of new and, you know, you, you know novel compounds. But that's just speculation. Uh, well, a lot of people have died from uh, spice mixtures sure. because they're untested and they're toxic. Um, and I testified at a House Committee on Drugs in Washington, D.C. a year or two ago, and we had a guy there whose son had died as a result of using spice. And he had said, yeah, his son had been using marijuana and they got him into a program so he wasn't using drugs anymore. And so he was cleaned up and he was being a good boy. And he went to a party and he just... You know, he just slipped up. They offered him a joint, said this is legal marijuana, and he smoked it, and he went into a coma and died a week later. Well, that can't be what happened. None of the spice mixtures are that toxic. But I'm sitting there thinking, you know, if he, if marijuana had been legal, your son would still be alive because marijuana has never killed anybody. And right. so these spice mixtures are replacements. They're legal. You can't drug test them. Drug testing is a big industry, right? You test you to see if you've been smoking marijuana. Even a week ago, two weeks ago, it'll still show up in your system. So they they use these spice mixtures because they're legal, quote unquote, and they can't be picked up in most drug testing, at least the newer ones that come out. So yeah, if marijuana was legal, you wouldn't have that happening. Um, you know, MDMA is kind of the same situation. Uh, people substitute all kinds of things for MDMA, and it. it and I'm not saying it would necessarily be legalized, but maybe decriminalized. If you get caught with a bag of marijuana, they, you know, they don't give you a felony. They charge you a $25 fine or something. And some of the states it's legal, right. which is, you know, it's it's ridiculous that states have these really arcane, draconian anti-marijuana laws. While we have Oregon and Colorado and other places that are making it legal for recreational use. So we have to have a change in the drug laws, and I think we'll see lives saved when that happens. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, let's bring it back to, uh, before we close here to to our listeners. I mean, you know, many most of them are physicians. Many of them deal with the the ravages of opioid abuse firsthand. They're dealing with patients in palliative and uh, care, you know, who are terminal, and many know the limits of of mental health today. You know, so many people suffering in so many ways, and there just haven't been, as you said, very many many breakthroughs in that field. <clears throat> What what is your sense right now uh, of the next maybe five, 10, 20 years? I mean, could we see, uh, you know, one some of these you know treatments becoming standard protocol, being legalized? Um, what can they expect, um, you know, from the research today and and the climate? Um, it's my opinion that um, we're looking, we're witnessing the real a real time paradigm shift in psychiatry. When you look at these drugs that can be used to treat depression, anxiety, addictions of all kinds, we don't know about eating disorders, but there are anecdotal reports that suggest that people have eaten mushrooms, 
beat their eating disorders, you know, addiction to cocaine, alcohol. Um, we don't have treatments for that now. And if these, they're now in, uh, MDMA is in, in the pivotal, is in phase three treatment for PTSD. After two years, people treated with MDMA, and 70% of them are no longer, no longer diagnosed as PTSD. I mean, that's extraordinary, Dave. I mean, I mean yeah, stop I with that number. Um, that, there's nothing that can compare to that. And so many people are well, suffering from that right now. That's. But look at depression. So right now, the psychiatric community is really excited about ketamine because right. ketamine has antidepressant effects. They've known it since, I think, 2001. You're given an infusion of ketamine, and for people that are suicidally depressed, boom, they're fine for maybe a week. Uh, and so now you have drug companies trying to come out with something that will do that that won't have any psychoactive effects, and they, they, can, they don't have to give every week or every two weeks or whatever. Right now you have to do reinfusions with ketamine. That's, it got everybody so excited. The only reason I can see that they're so excited is because it's a legal drug. It's not a schedule one drug and physicians can get it. Right. So I think if we have, when psilocybin is moved out of schedule one, which I think it will be when these, these studies are done, um, then I think we're going to see much more excitement about that because you can do so much more. I mean, ketamine is useful for maybe depression, and it's an anesthetic, but beyond that, but when you have a drug that could be used for all kinds of addictions, for depression, anxiety, eating disorders, obsessive compulsive disorder, I mean, we haven't seen these all play out yet, but uh, the hints are there. It, it it's, <clears throat> it's not the philosopher's stone, but it's pretty damn close. <laughs> I'd say so. <clears throat> Keith, do you have any other questions? No, I'm good. Well, Dave, let's close it out here. I mean, our, our listeners can't prescribe psilocybin yet to their patients, but no. where can they learn more about your work, the Hafter Institute, and if they want to get involved and support some of this research, how can they do that? So there are a couple places. Um, I mentioned MAPS. They have a website, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. The Hefter Institute, we have a website. It's got videos on there they can see that talks about some of our studies. It's got a list of all the research we've supported over the years. There's a big long list of different research and investigators. There's a new institute, uh, the USONA Institute, out of uh, Madison, Wisconsin. They're also getting set to do uh, clinical trials with psilocybin in depression, in a major uh, depressive disorder. Um, there's also this organization, Compass Pathways, in the UK. They have a website. And all of those websites you could go to and they'll say who we are, what we're doing, how you know, contact us, how could you get involved. I think every one of those would give you some information. And there's certainly you could email. I mean, on you know, I get emails all the time, Dave at Hefter.org and other people, so they could contact us if they had specific questions. But I think it's gonna be really I'd say five years anyway, before these things actually might be moved out of schedule one and people could use them. Physicians to use these will have to be trained to get special training. Um, so just anybody probably won't be able to get them. You'll have to have some training certificate. Um, and those training programs are set up now. Uh, there's one out of uh, the California Institute of Integral Studies, CIS. Uh, they have a training program for a psychedelic therapist. Uh, MAPS has a training program for therapists for these drugs. So there is a specialized kind of training, just like you would have in any medical specialty. So physicians would have to be trained. Um, the indications for psilocybin are for uh, depression or treatment-resistant depression. But the reason the Hefter Institute is doing for alcohol use disorder, nicotine addiction, 
cocaine, et cetera, et cetera. Our idea is that, uh, that these will be able to be used off-label. The FDA discourages off-label use. They, you can't go in and say, well, we're, we're going to propose off-label. Once it's approved, physicians can use it off-label, but we think that they won't be able to get psilocybin unless they've got a, some kind of a certificate that shows you know what you're doing with this because there are psychological risks. You could screw somebody's mind up, you know, right. if you don't know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, um, you know, realistically, five years, which isn't, you know, I've been doing it since 1969, so five years doesn't seem very long anymore to me. Yeah, that's very true. That's, uh, that's encouraging. I used to tell people I thought I would be, long after I was dead, these things would, you know, be available, and they'd say, You'll be dead. That's so depressing. I said, "Well, if it's going in the right direction, I'll be happy." But we're 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 closer now than I ever thought we'd be. And where do we find you today? Because I mean, you're retired from Purdue, but you're you're not you're not done yet. You're still working, right? Yeah, I'm an and I'm an adjunct professor at UNC Chapel Hill, and I still do consulting work, intellectual property consulting for pharmaceutical companies. Well, we're going to get all of actually a lot of notes up on the show notes for the website, so everybody can dig in deeper, more so than usual in our episodes but dave thank you so much for carving out um actually almost an hour and 40 minutes with us so we're 40 minutes past what we asked oh, before, wow. so that uh, we really appreciate it i mean this is really really important stuff especially for all the people out there that could benefit from it so yeah you know, I, I appreciate what you've done i appreciate you having me on and everybody, that is Dave Nichols with us. And as I said, we're going to get a lot more up online and, you know, join the conversation too. Tell us what you think about this and, you know, maybe, maybe not tell us about your personal experiences you might've had, but, <laughs> but, uh, tell us what you think. And, uh, with that said, wherever, whenever you're listening to us, take care. We'll see you here next time. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com.